This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you tuning in, having me in your queue, whatever you're doing. Hope you guys are staying safe out there. Uh, this COVID thing, there's so many unexpected things that keep happening. Some places get better, some get worse. New York seems to be a lot better, and it was doing horribly. Los Angeles is doing great. And, you know, or Southern California, I should say, and now it seems to be doing worse. But um, I just want, I don't know if I've said this enough. I really want everybody to be safe out there. I wish you the best. I think almost everybody I know, it's touched them in some way personally. I've known people who have caught it. Uh, I've known people um, who have passed away from it. Um, I've had family members that are dealing with it, all kinds of stuff. So it hits home and it is no joke. So be safe out there. I thought I would take a moment to just say that. Um, I'm really excited about today's show. I don't really have much of a weigh-in. Um, Isabel Wilkerson, whose book Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. Guys, let me tell you something. You have to read this book. And I, I don't do a lot of book recommendations. I have a lot of people who have books on, and I enjoy the books that I read. I haven't had any books on where I go, eh. But this one, I mean, Ms. Wilkerson, she really breaks down just the relationship of race in this country and really frames it in ways that it gives you so much clarity. And I don't even think, and she mentions this, I don't even think she uses the word racist to describe people or that type of thing. She really uses the idea of the caste system and what that is and caste itself as a word to really see I'll call it a relationship, this whole relationship in a completely, completely different and clear way. Fascinating. So I want to have that conversation speak for itself. So we'll devote most of this time to that. I could have, I could have talked to her for hours. It was one of those types of conversations. Um, so we'll get back on politics next week. Although I do have to, I do have to, I did this thing that Trump said, Trump is always making fun of people and this latest thing that he did is just so funny where, I mean, Trump is, he's an idiot. You guys know that. He called Yosemite Yosemite uh, the other day. Yosemite, 
you know, I mean, he's just so dense. And, you know, he keeps saying that Joe Biden is the one who doesn't have his faculties, you know, and yet Trump can't even read off a teleprompter. And he gets so many things wrong. You know, the latest examples are only a little bit. The things that he just gets wrong from <laughs> from Corinthians 2 or 2 Corinthians when he's trying to show how Christian he is, you know. But the latest is him trying to pronounce Thailand. Shifting production to Thailand. Thailand. <laughs> I mean, Thailand, you guys. I mean, would it ever occur to you? Look, let me talk about something too. It's easy to get stuff wrong on the teleprompter. There's a thing I kind of call prompteritis, where you just don't see words properly. You see letters. It used to happen to me all the time, but it usually happened in rehearsal, you know, then I would get it right. There, I kept saying Illinois. I couldn't say Illinois. And I think my crew thought I was crazy. They thought, is Larry stupid? Does he know it's Illinois? I go, I know it is. I just can't stop saying that S, you know. But it was in rehearsal. I got out of me, so I get that. But he's the president of the United States. He's got to know. He's got to know. As soon as he says Thailand, that this is not right, you know. Shifting production to Thailand. <laughs> he says it with such, <laughs> with such bravado. He always says it with such bravado, too. It's just... Um, I'm sorry. I could just listen to that shifting all day. Shifting production oh. to Thailand. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. It's just great. We're shifting production to Thailand, you guys. That's what we're doing now. So anyhow, we'll get back on that train next week. Hopefully, Biden will announce his vice presidential candidate soon. Everybody thinks it's probably going to be Kamala Harris. Probably. You know, that. I, I'm guessing that's probably his best bet at this point. I think she'd be great on the ticket. It'd be great to see her on the ticket. Um, even though I've talked about my issues with her as a candidate, but um, it'd be great to see her on the ticket. I think she has the she has so much tenacity, you know, that I think it's a it's just a good quality. Joe acts like he has tenacity, but you know, it always feels fakey. Kamala, when she's fierce, I believe she's like that. She's not kidding around, you know. Like when she was on that uh, uh, Senate uh, panel asking those questions. She is not kidding around. So that would be my pick right now, but we'll see. I think there's some good people who they're thinking about. We'll see. But anyhow, the last thing I'll say is um, I do have uh, some exciting news that I can't tell you right now, but I will tell you next week. If you follow me on Twitter, I'll be talking about it on Monday. And I'm really excited about it. And just something I've been uh, working on for a little bit and just want to announce it for everybody. And I think you'll you will enjoy that announcement. So I know it's a bit of a tease right now, but I'll let you know what that is on Monday. And just know that I'm very excited about this and hopefully you'll, you will be too. All right, so we have Isabel Wilkerson coming up, cast The Origins of Our Discontent. Guys, this is a very, very important person with the unbelievable book. If you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. 
and you'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. And with Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So go to GetRoman.com slash Larry to try out a three-month supply of nightly defense for just $5. $5, you guys. And it's free to chat with the doctor. And your first order is just $5. I'll say it again. That's GetRoman.com slash Larry. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, welcome back. Uh, man, it is a pleasure and an honor to have this person on. Isabel Wilkerson, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and her new book, Cast the Origins of Our Discontent. Man, there is so much in this book. Every chapter is just a gem. Um, it is even Oprah. had She had no choice. Oprah had no choice, you guys. She had to make it her book of the, of the <laughs> month or of the year. I think she's making it book of the year. Isabel Wilkerson, welcome to Black on the Air. Uh, it's great to have you. <laughs> Thank you. I have to say, you are a Pulitzer Prize winner, but how exciting was it to have Oprah actually <laughs> like the book and and <laughs> proclaim it as the book? That must have been something, right? Well, it's an out of body experience because you know you're you go into this deep immersion in what you're doing, and yeah. then you just barely are able to sort of you know get yourself back into your regular you know regular life, and then yeah. suddenly this happens and you know it's it's just astonishing you are yeah. not prepared for it and it's just it's just amazing well one thing it's it's nice to have something uh you know that these types of books sometimes can just be uh, ignored is not the right word but i maybe not appreciate it you know so it's nice to have somebody like oprah who can help people who normally might not seek it out just have eyes on it and know that it's out there you know it's a i feel like Something like that is such a great plus, don't you think? 
Oh, well, it certainly brings a whole new audience uh, to this idea. And it's yeah. a, it's an idea that, you know, clearly I, I went into it with this view of helping us to see things mm-hmm. that we otherwise see and to see us as um, not, not even just as a country, but, but as a species, you know, how do human beings interact with one another? How mm-hmm. do human beings themselves up? And, and the consequences of that. So, so yes, it, it brings a whole new audience to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll, it'll just be very interesting to see the conversations, to hear the conversations that grow out of it. Yeah, and I like your approach to it also. It kind of reminds me, you brought up species. It kind of reminds me of the book Species in some ways, you know. Uh, <laughs> you have a very uh, holistic human approach to this, almost scientific in some ways, you know. I mean, comparing... I mean, your opening salvo on this is talking about pathogens and comparing it to a virus, you know, which kind of a joke I made about racism in America. I said it was like COVID-16, 19, you know, <laughs> about how we started here. Uh, but what was your starting point? Like, what were you observing that made you feel like you had to kind of give us a framework to talk about this? Well, first, you know, it started with the first book, The Warmth of Other Suns, yes. you know, which was, the you know, migration of six million African-Americans from the Jim Crow South, and they were fleeing this uh, repressive regime mm-hmm. that not enough Americans actually know what that was actually like uh, yeah. because we were not taught it. And in writing that that book about what they were enduring in that in that system, I came to realize that racism, as we have come to to use the word now, did not convey all that they were enduring. You know mm-hmm. that that the word racism was not quite sufficient to capture the totality of the authoritarian rule under which they had been born. And so I wanted to, I ended up using the word caste as mm-hmm. opposed to race throughout the book. And a lot of people you know, think that the book has racism in it, but it actually doesn't, I don't use the word. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was the, the beginnings. That was where this, it, this book is in some ways a continuum from that, where this book goes even more deeply into a concept that I first used in that book and that I thought deserved a greater and a deeper exploration. I thought it would have more meaning for us today. Yeah. When you're writing Warmth of Our Sons, you mentioned how many people, I mean, your research for that book was so exhaustive. I was exhausted reading about it, to be honest <laughs> with you. I mean, but what I've always found fascinating, this is something I wanted to do kind of a documentary on this, which is kind of how you research Warmth of Our Sons, is talking to the people who were there, you know, and yeah. who are connected and have stories to tell. And was it yeah. in the listening to some of those stories where you go, oh, there's another story to tell here? Uh, well, with Warmth of the Sons, mm-hmm. um, I, I did uh, interview, or actually I should say spend time with, because when you do this kind of work, it's not really traditional interviewing. It's more spending time and hearing the stories and experiences of people. Mm. And I, I you know, met with or talked with 1,200 people for wow. that book. It was over was over the course of years, several years, and going to senior centers and mm-hmm. and meeting many people and hearing the stories. And the stories were heart-wrenching, uh, but then also looking at the written record that showed what life was like in mm-hmm. that world. And that's how I came to this realization that it was more than just uh, racism in the way that we think of it now, because there was, there was such a tremendous investment in keeping people in their place. That's right. It goes beyond in terms of just not you know, just not liking a group of people or feeling hatred for another people. There was a tremendous deep investment 
in maintaining the spaces, people separate. For example, it was against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together. (laughs) There were were actually separate Bibles, a black Bible and a white Bible to spread the truth on in court, uh, in many Southern courtrooms. So this is more than just prejudice and not liking people. There's something Mm -hmm. deeper beneath all of that. And that's how I came to use the word caste. Yeah. In that book. Also, also, I have to say that uh, anthropologists and other researchers who went to study the Jim Crow South during the 1930s, they also emerged from their research with the word caste as the word that they felt most captured what they were seeing and what they were researching. So uh, there was there's precedent for using that word in, res- in respect to uh, American race relations. And there's precedent from that era for as a way of understanding how we how we the foundations of, of our society and so all of those things led me to use cast in the warmth of the suns and then to explore it even further in this book to just devote an entire book to the to the idea i think it's so smart because i think many times when we talk about uh, the relationship between black and white in this country and in terms of race, I think whites are on the defensive because it feels like an accusation, which, you know, in many cases, rightly so it is. But you've turned it more into an observation, you know, than an accusation, um, which... I love take, that. Yeah, especially, I mean, I tell you, it's so much of it is so disarming because of that reason, you know. Um, dis- the way that you describe how people had to live like in the early part of this country before it was a country with people being treated in the way that they are, you know, and, and, you know, being a theater major, I love how you interchange C-A-S-T-E with C-A-S-T, you know, almost as if people are put into these roles. And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, are you saying that um, this is set up as a way to put people in roles or was this were these roles already assigned and people were saying, oh, by the way, no, 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 black person, you already have a role here. It's this, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it started with the idea of really trying to unpack cast in every possible way. Yeah. And one of the first ways to do it was to look at the word itself, mm-hmm. to look at itself. And so I just thought about, you know, cast can mean different things. So I spent a lot of time with just the etymology of the word. Right, which is my, uh, I love that, yeah. You know, I just, that's just how my mind works. And so one of the uses of the term cast is when, if you have fractured bones and a cast is put on your arm in order to hold those bones in a fixed place so they they can come fused back together. That's one use of it. And then Mm -hmm. another is, of course, the cast in a play. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about what happens in the cast of a a play. And that's where you have characters, actors who are assigned roles, and everyone knows what their role is. Everyone knows their lines. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of times in a play, you know, all of the actors learn the entire script so that they will know exactly the context in which all of this is happening. It was fascinating about that, too, not to drop, is that, Everyone knows their place. In fact, the thing that you say at the beginning of a place, places. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And so one of the things about cast is that it's obviously, it's an ancient phenomenon that predates what we might think of in terms of race. Right. But the, the fact of it is that cast is primarily about roles 
and where one fits in a hierarchy, essentially an artificial hierarchy, like a graded ranking of, of human value in a society. Mm-hmm. And that the way that it's enforced has to do with one's places. Like you said, places that a person might be standing on the stage and you know where you're supposed to stand on the stage. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that people would do in the South, it, one of the, la- the language of the South was that one was to always know their place and That's to right. remain in their place. All of that is part of, um, you know, language of the American South for much of our country's history involving African-Americans, m- many of whom, of course, were, were in the South for much of our history. But then the fact that that language actually speaks directly to what caste is about to begin with. And you make a distinction between, because I've wondered about this reading it too, between caste and class, you know, which m- many people can conflate. But I think there is a difference. You know, I think... You know, not to speak for you, but is caste more immutable and unchangeable and class maybe has, you know, you're able to switch classes like people can rise to different classes, I suppose. But caste seems something more unchangeable. Is that true? Yeah, well, caste is the underlying infrastructure of a hierarchy that is essentially designed to maintain an economy that is to the benefit of those on top. I mean, that's essentially what mm-hmm. um, what it is. And those on top historically in our society as it was configured, had uh, people who were the colonizers themselves, the colonists themselves were the ones who placed themselves on top and then everyone else beneath them. And of course, African-Americans uh, brought in to be enslaved were automatically put on the, you know, assigned to the bottom rung of that, of that hierarchy. But I, so, so that essential hierarchy of, of, one group being at the very top and another group being at the very bottom and then other groups coming in and entering and being in the middle and somehow trying to navigate that essential framework is a framework of any hierarchy. And that's, that's how the hierarchy, you know, that's the infrastructure of the hierarchy. And then on top of that hierarchy are the, is the measurement, the signifier of where a person fits into that caste system or into that hierarchy. And that means that any number of, of, Factors could be used to position a person into the hierarchy. It could be, or to determine one's value, it could mm-hmm. be height, could have been height. It could have been eye color. It could have been uh, any number of things, physical designations. And in other caste systems, there, there are such things as religion that's used, geography. Mm-hmm. There are many, many things that could be used. In the United States, it just so happened that race became the tool uh, the signal, the signifier of where one fits in the is assigned in the caste system. So I decide I describe caste as the bones, mm. race is the skin that you can see, mm. and that we we inherit that should have no meaning, but has has been attached meaning on the basis of the need to to categorize people as the country was being built, and then the. The last thing is class, which is the, you might say, the clothes and the diction and the accents and the, you know, one's education, the things that you can actually change about yourself in order to, um, to try to, you know, lift yourself up. Those are the things we have some control over. And what, what one way of putting it, one way of looking at it is if you can act your way out of it, it's class. Mm -hmm. If you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, I was just going to ask, like, uh, my brother and I used to talk about this early on, how, you know, a white hippie in the 60s, all he has to do is shave and put on a suit and he can go into any office. But a brother who, you know, who went to Harvard during that same period would still have it harder than that, you know, person who did nothing with their lives or whatever, you know. That's exactly it. That's 
the role that class plays in our society. And it does play a role. It's mm-hmm. just not the same as what I'm talking It's not the same as caste and it's not the same as race. That's, they all have uh, art. That's so interesting because uh, I'm just, it, this makes me so happy because I love distinctions in words and, and how <laughs> words give us clarity. You have no, you're talking to a writing nerd right now. So <laughs> your book has so many of these just fantastic things in it. And this is one that I'm hoping people can land them because here's my opinion on this. I think a lot of people argue from class when they really are not understanding caste, when they're saying, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, when all you're talking about is class, those are really simpler bootstraps, you know, but they're, they're completely different when it's caste and class, when both of those are put together, right? You're absolutely right. I mean, we have so many examples of that, that, you know, that people who are able to somehow transcend the barriers that caste places on one's a person and transcend the barriers that race as the tool and, and signal of, of, of caste mm-hmm. rising past. There are many, many examples of people who have transcended um, through their hard work, through doing the things that people say, you know, if you just work hard and you get a good education mm-hmm. and you you know, carry yourself in a certain way, you will succeed. Well, yes, there, there are examples of African-Americans, for example, uh, assigned to coordinated cast, but still doing very well uh, for themselves in spite of all the barriers. And then no matter how successful they may be or how they carry themselves, they could still in any moment be reminded of the infrastructure of caste. Mm-hmm. So there's the example that I that, that I cite in the book, of course, Whitaker, you know, uh, one of our Academy Award winning Oscar winning actor who just walked into a, a deli in Manhattan, a, a, an upscale deli in Manhattan, went in, was looking to see what he what he wanted to get, didn't did whatever he wanted. They didn't have it. And so he walked out and they the, the staff stopped what they were doing and then uh, uh, blocked him from getting from leaving and then searched him. In front of all the other customers, such a humiliating thing to happen to someone and and searched him as if he were a common criminal because it did not matter at that moment that he had an Oscar. It did not matter that he was one of the most esteemed actors of our time. At that moment, what they saw was the signifier of where he fit in the caste system. Mm -hmm. And then they acted on that on that input on that in, on that assumption. And there's a there's a, a case out of the UK that got attention just recently in which the the UK editor, the British the, the editor of British Vogue, uh, a man of African descent, um, an African immigrant, um, or the child of African immigrants, I should say, uh, he w- was walking into his own building. Here he is the editor of British mm-hmm. Vogue and the security guard stops him and tells him he has to use the freight elevator to go into his own building, his own office. So these are examples, and there are many, many examples of people who have have fulfilled the requirements that are stated by society that if you just work hard and and you succeed, you know and you you apply yourself then you will succeed and you will you will not have to deal with any of that you will have risen above all of that. But in an instant you can be reminded of one's of your caste. Yeah, uh, I, in higher I that's that's fantastic. I I feel it's um, also a way to describe the relationship between police and many blacks is people always think it's a white black thing, but I've always insisted it's blue black, you know, um, because black officers can operate in the same way because it's not so much about race. It is about caste. You know, it's about, you know, like blacks are subjected to this type of thinking as much as whites in many cases, you know, is what I'm saying, because it's not so much race, it's caste. It's viewing someone who looks a certain way 
into a certain ideal because everyone's been taught that, you know? That is literally one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book because I find that caste is one of, it's the only explanation that I have found, and there may be other Mm -hmm. explanations, but the only explanation that I have found for the consistency of the view and the actions upon the view that mm. that idea that people who are who are black uh, should be or could be held in a lower place no matter what. In other words, mm-hmm. it's the only thing that explains that it's not about necessarily the individual who's acting, but right. how the person who is being targeted is seen. Mm-hmm. So anyone view someone who is in the subordinated caste as beneath others. Anyone could view the people in the subordinated caste as worthy of nothing more than the, the worst treatment that could be imagined. Mm-hmm. Anyone could see and absorb the messaging of the caste system that puts an, an entire group of people from the very from even before the time that the country was founded, you know, in the early going, early colonial times, that put people of African descent at the very bottom of the hierarchy. Everyone receives these messaging, the messaging from, uh, from, you know, from commercials to billboards, to movies, you know, who gets killed first in a movie. I mean, to every, mm-hmm. every way we all receive those messages to such a degree that the unconscious bias that is in some ways the fuel for the ongoing um, behavior of caste that we see, you know, on the viral videos and all that we see, it's the unconscious bias that um, that is that we've absorbed. Mm-hmm. This is not this is not limited to to people who are identified as white in our country because we exactly. are all exposed, all programmed to this yep. to such a degree that uh, that that in with unconscious bias, um, it's said that eighty percent of white Americans have unconscious bias um, uh, uh, when it comes to African Americans. This is not this is this this has nothing to do with being a good person or a bad person. It has That's nothing right. to do. With it has nothing to do with being a racist or not being a racist. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with how much of the messaging and the programming that comes in our society, how much of that has been absorbed. And so 80%, the studies show 80% of white Americans have absorbed this. But also a third of African Americans, a third of black people have absorbed the same programming mm-hmm. against themselves. So the caste and between caste and, and the subconscious bias that fuels it in our current day, that's one of the few. But not, that's one of the few ways of looking at it that, that kind of explains why you might see people who are not white mm-hmm. um, participating in things that are hurtful to people who are identified as being on the bottom of the caste system because the messaging has, has, has been received by everyone. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the police, unfortunately to me, have a lineage that goes back to the colonial times that you describe in your book also. And um, I'm not sure if I have this in the form of a question, but I'll just describe it the way that you talk about it. But I, it feels like the caste system that was set up, that set up slavery, it was forced to switch off people's humanity, you know, because they were not allowed to see black pain, you know, to, to be able to, have empathy for black suffering that was happening right in front of them because they needed the people to be put in a certain place. And that has a cost, right? Absolutely. It has a cost to everyone. Actually, it dehumanizes everyone in the system because you lose touch with your own sense of humanity and to dehumanize others 
you're dehumanizing yourself, first of all. You're distancing yourself from others in your own species, and you are willing to, uh, in in that era in particular, uh, where there was the economic imperative, and from their perspective, to maintain, keep this group of people, entire group of people, at the very bottom, and to have absolute control over everything uh, related to them, their entire bodies, whether they would live or die, complete Mm -hmm. total control of everything, in order to do that and to justify themselves, they had to absorb and create uh, a narrative that 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 meant that, that that told them to tell themselves that the people were actually not human, right. that uh, that were uh, beneath them in every single way, and then even to find scriptural justification by by evoking mm-hmm. the story of no- Noah and uh, his three sons, Ham being Ham. the one who first yeah. seen his father come you know happened to walk into a room where his father was was uh, was unclothed and so they created all of these this justification but the ultimately the dehumanizing uh created a barrier mm-hmm. this that meant that um that meant that almost anything could be done to the people because they were not seen as human dehumanization is in fact one of the eight pillars of caste that i uh that i uh compiled to try to clarify um what what occurs actually the characteristics of any caste system and dehumanization is one of the central tenets of a caste system. Yeah. It's so important to understand because uh, one of the most misunderstood or non-understood periods in American history is is reconstruction and then the years following reconstruction and what was happening. Yeah. And to me, you know, um, when you have the uh, 13th, 14th and 15th amendments, you know, freeing slavery, uh, birthright citizenship and the right to vote, you're forced to deal with these people who you have dehumanized who are being humanized in front of you. And that's like, whoa, wait a second, you know. And the the terror that was unleashed on Blacks during this period of time is unprecedented. One of the great tragedies uh, of the many, many tragedies of the end of Reconstruction, of course, is that people who had been for 246 years, for 12 generations, held in, um, in essentially held hostage um, uh, with, with, you know, and, and subject to the whims of anyone that deigned to claim to own them. Um, and, and others from the same group that claimed to own them, because one of the things that, that occurred during enslavement is the idea that anyone from the dominant caste had the right to surveil to to intercept, to control, to um, to even arrest, and you know, citizens arrest uh, right. to participate in um, the slave catching. Um, that 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 was actually the duty of the dominant caste to do, to to surveil, watch, and to capture uh, any anyone in the subordinated caste who was seen as as out of their place, uh, and and so that that carried forth. For so long, 246 years, that that was the way the, this entire group of people was seen, and so after you know after the Civil War and then after Reconstruction, when during Reconstruction, where people were there was an attempt to bring equality to them, to bring uh, citizenship rights to them, and all the other rights and privileges of citizenship. The withdrawal of the Northern troops, the withdrawal in, of the North from oversight. Right. This process left the people in, in some ways, worse shape 
if it could be imagined than before, because now there was no, not even the barest uh, economic interest in maintaining the health and well-being of the people who had been enslaved. And on top of that, they were now scapegoated for the loss, the defeat that the South had experienced. And <laughs> so this began what, uh, you know, what the his historian Rayford Logan called the nadir, meaning the, just the lowest sure. point for people of African descent uh, in, in this country. How important was it uh, going to India? You spent some time there to kind of get a, a sense of caste in, you know, one of the places that did it the best, ironically. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, if I'm going to be writing about caste, I have I have to uh, have to study and and try to understand. This is an attempt to understand the original mm-hmm. oldest. Oldest, easiest, most easily recognized caste system in, in the world, which of course is India, and um, so I knew that I needed to go there. I knew to, that I needed to at least see what what I could experience of that. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's you know, obviously it's very far away, and it's not easy necessarily for right. for outsiders to even get into the country. But um, but I was. It became necessary because the to understand how that that caste system came to be and to see where there are parallels and where they diverge was the goal of this book to try to see what could we learn about ourselves by looking at the original caste system? Where are the, what are the things that we, where are the places where they, uh, they converge and where are the places where they diverge? What are the differences and what are the similarities? And I, I found that um, there were similarities that helped to, in other words, some of the interactions that occur in um, in the experiences of African Americans occur for the people who are who've been assigned to the bottom rung of the Indian caste system, mm-hmm. and some of the language is even similar. For example, in the United States, we often hear about you know the such the, the accusation of reverse racism mm-hmm. if for African Americans talking about race, and there's such a thing as reverse casteism. Uh, there's in the United States this there's, there's a reverse discrimination um, for Africa for what we call affirmative action in the United States and it's called reverse reverse casteism for what's called uh, reservations is what what it's called in India one way that I look at it is we often ask questions about why do these people do a particular thing why do these mm-hmm. people act in a certain way why do these people do a particular thing my answer is, is always the question is not why do these people do this particular thing, but what do human beings do in a particular circumstance? And in this case, you know, the people, pe- human beings put in a caste system in which there's an art, you know, there's this hierarchy that's inherited, that everyone knows the rules, knows the script, the, the response is similar. You know, the, the accusation of reverse racism, the accusation of reverse dis- discrimination at the suggestion that the people who'd been on the bottom are actually rising up. You know, there's just the same, very, very similar reaction. In fact, um, we had the Black Panther Party here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, inspired by that, there was a Dalit uh, Panther Party in uh, in India. Dalit meaning the word that is now used to describe what had been known as the untouchables. Right. So there are these parallels in in both behavior and in connections that we in the United States might not be aware of, but they themselves may see. And of course, these distinctions go all the way back to even Hannibal, whose first, you know, writing up of communal laws you know, made it clear there was a caste system <laughs> in the well, writing ca- up for that. Some of the earliest, you know, written documents and that kind of thing. I think it's a human impulse to to categorize yeah. 
divide and, and in order to control. Uh, there may be mm-hmm. that that uh, a human impulse. My view in work work writing this book is once we recognize that impulse and see how it plays out in in one's own society and see how it actually is harming us, how you see the consequences of it, then perhaps we can open our eyes to it to try to address it. And even Martin Luther King, uh, you mentioned, and, and I had heard about this. I didn't know a lot of details about it, you know, because I knew he was inspired by Gandhi, but uh, he actually made a trip to India uh, and it kind of opened his eyes a bit, right? Yeah, he made a pilgrimage to India in 1959. Uh, he, uh, you know, this was obviously before Selma, after mm-hmm. Montgomery, but Selma, and uh, he he went there to uh, to see the land of of Gandhi, uh, who had inspired his nonviolent protest mm-hmm. uh, philosophies. And upon a, he he arrived there as as a celebrity, really, because people had been following him. That's another <laughs> That's example. But then he went to he went he was he was taken to uh, the uh, an area where there were untouchables and uh, he went to a school he visited a school there and and, uh, and uh, the principal in introducing him uh, said you know children we you know students we have a guest with us today we are being visited by uh, a fellow untouchable from America he that's how he announced uh, that's how he uh, described Dr King uh, mm-hmm. to the children. Students and when Dr. King heard that, his reaction at first was that it, you know, it, it didn't <laughs> land so easy here. I mean, he was actually a bit peaked to be described to that. He did not right. think of himself. That word is not a word he would have applied to himself. Uh, he didn't see himself that way. Um, and, but then he thought about it further. I mean, he thought he he thought, well, here I am, you know, act, advocating and marching on behalf of the people who do not have the rights, who are actually the rights of citizenship, who actually have been uh, assigned to the very bottom, having the least access to uh, the into all that the United States to the, that America represents, who have very cannot cannot vote, you know, are not are, are the poorest paid, poorest treated. Yes, he said, I, I am an untouchable. I am an American untouchable. And, and every black person in the United States, every black person in America is an untouchable. So he made that recognition. He came to that recognition. And, and, and it actually took, uh, took time for him to, to do that, to process it. And he, mm-hmm. he spoke of it uh, in a sermon that he delivered on the 4th of July in 1965 uh, at, at Ebenezer Baptist Church, in which he described his realization is this revelation that he had he had had in, in India, and he then was one of the people, obviously one of the most famous people to ever make the connection between India and the United States and the Indian caste system and the caste system of the United States. Dr. Martin Luther King made the connection and identified America as having a caste system. Mm-hmm. Amazing, um, amazing. I know there's so much that is. You know, there. I tell you, one of the most, um, I want to use the right word here. Um, you know, I've been talking about this stuff for a long time, but I still get affected by individual stories. And you use a lot of individual stories in your book to alarming effect, you know, and really touching. Um, but the purity versus pollution part of your book really hit me. This is something I've tried to explain to people. Because I would say, look, for some of this, you're a researcher, but I'm a witness. Like I'm old enough to have seen, you know, lived through some of these things, you know, or at least have my parents tell me directly. 
But people yeah. have no idea. You tell the story of the kid on the baseball team and how they went swimming. It uh, is one of the most touching stories that you can read about this. And for me, what it does is uh, just, here's the thing. Let me put it a different way. A lot of people, especially white people, don't know what the experience has been for blacks. So you only hear it in the abstract about slavery is like an abstract term. Jim Crow is like an abstract term. But when you hear the actual treatment, and by the way, I want to make it clear. I, I will say this, and people may disagree with me. I will say by people of good will, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, people of good will who are acting in this system that they're within and it's so absurd when you read it but can you relate a little bit of that story you don't have to give all the details of it because i mean reading it if you're not if you don't have tears in your eyes reading that i just don't know you know uh, if you don't have tears in your eyes you're not human this was a little league team in youngstown ohio that had just won the championship what was and the year? one of uh 1951 so within 51. the lifespan okay. who are you know who are with us i mean this is not ancient yeah. history it was right before 19- Joe Biden met Corn Pop, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, but this is within living memory of many people who were alive, you know. Um, yeah. and, and so uh, they won the they won the, the the city championship, and one of the you know one of their star players, the only, only African American uh, on the team, was one of their star players. And so anyway, to to uh, to celebrate, the team went to. Uh, went to a, a local pool, a municipal pool, a, a mm-hmm. public pool uh, to celebrate, to have a pool party. And when they got there, the, the lifeguard would not permit him in the pool. The one black player on the team could not uh, join his teammates uh, for the for, for the pool party. And they they forced him to sit on a blanket outside the pool area behind a fence the entire time. They forced him to do that. And people would bring him food, and and he had to watch <sighs> all of his teammates frolic in the pool, uh, you know, while he was forced to sit to sit outside. Uh, and then I don't I don't know how much of it you want me to say. Um, well, let's, well, let's just to- yeah. Well, let's just say um, the scenario that you point in this. Yeah, we'll leave the rest for people to read, but because the yeah. ending is it's hard. It's heartbreaking because. And I want people to understand, this is, to me, one of the biggest, kind of, sorry, I'm getting emotional as I'm talking about, but it it is one of the biggest takeaways is that, you know, I'm reading this going, man, I mean, clearly the people involved in this want this kid to be able to enjoy it, but they can't. They've been taught that that water is, spreads this contaminant that, you know, there's this disease called blackness and water is one of the carriers, you know, it's it's one of the... uh, conductors of this, you know, if you will, you yes. know, that, and people have been taught this and they believe it. You know, there, there were stories back then, like if a black person jumped into a pool, they, they would have to drain that pool and use, you know, um, whatever it is, you know, bleach to clean it out before white people would oh, get back in it. You know, and those are com- common stories, not uncommon. I was going to say, there are so many examples that I could not fit them in. There were just so, so many examples. This mm-hmm. is, And there's also a connection to our current era where in McKinney, Texas, and there were some black kids who went to a pool party in a, in a white subdivision and the police, the, the, someone there called the police on them. And one of the viral videos of that year was one of a police officer who showed up and actually pinned the young girl to the ground 
put, you know, had his knees on her back, was pulling her by holding her down by her hair. Mm -hmm. Um, The other kids who were around there who saw it tried to help her because they could see how, um, you know, it was, it was essentially, and, and, you know, she was being assaulted on, on some level and, and they responded and then the officer pulled a gun on them and then they all had to back away. I mean, it was just, it's one of the viral videos. I covered that Uh, on my uh, show, the uh, nightly show. We, we covered that story. Um, Yeah. That's a, there's a, there's a through line mm-hmm. to, from that 1951 experience to the current day, uh, in which the water itself is contested. The, mm-hmm. the arrival of, of the, of people from a group that had been identified as polluting, um, whether the language is used today or not, but this is the inheritance. This is our right. inheritance. People alive today did not create this. Uh, the people alive today uh, are not the ones who are responsible for the existence of it. But these are examples of how people are st- can still be acting upon the messaging that has been passed down through the generations, whether we realize it or not. Absolutely. Um, well, everybody's got to read. There's so much in this book. And, you know, <laughs> like I said, your distinctions are so powerful. Um, and the examples that, that you give... Um, I'm not sure if you end on a, on a hopeful note, but you say, is it because you pose the question, is a world without caste possible? Um, yeah. Are we saying a world or is, is the question, is an America without caste possible? Or is that a better question for the world? What do you think? I think that it's become a global challenge because, okay. you know, caste affects us. I mean, one of the examples that I give is, is you know, Ebola, the Ebola crisis of, of uh, 2014, uh, in which the the global response could be seen as having been slower than it otherwise might have been because of the diminishment mm. in the terms of the value of the people who were uh, the primary sufferers at that time. Mm-hmm. And that, mm. the response perhaps slower than it otherwise might have been. Uh, it stepped up when it started to spread to the Western world. Um, this is all documented. This is not my opinion, and and that maybe then you know, some of these things could would be managed differently if we valued everyone who might be at risk. You know, in COVID nineteen, we're seeing that you know the people who are most you know the people who are really on the front lines and then thus facing greater exposure in out in the public are people who would be you know, who are, would be viewed as uh, part of it in the caste term, subordinated caste, people, black and brown people who are the ones, uh, you know, out there doing relegated to the work that, that others might not have wanted to have to be forced to do, stacking shelves at supermarkets, driving the buses, public transportation, delivering essential uh, goods, and thus putting themselves at risk because they were exposed to the public often without the protective devices that they might have needed, certainly in the early going uh, mm-hmm. of this. And then, of course, we saw the effect was the higher rates of, of illness and, and, and uh, serious illness and, and often death, while others were able to shelter in place and to be safer. And so these are the ways that it still affects us. And that's why I say it's, it's, it's actually because we are such a globalized you know, uh, species now, it, it's more than just, uh, it's more than even just one country. But of course, you know, where this book is about primarily, you know, our country. And, and therefore, this is a question for, for all of us to, to consider you know, in hopes that we can heal from this and overcome it. Absolutely. I mean, it even occurs when our reaction to we hear, when we hear about deaths in the Middle East compared to deaths in Europe. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. It's, it, it, mm-hmm. it's, we've, I think the, the world has absorbed mm-hmm. the 
hierarchies that have become so accepted that we don't even think about them anymore. We don't question. And this is asking us to, this is asking us to look more deeply Mm -hmm. and question and to be and to do the work of really knowing our history really learning our history our true history and allowing ourselves to even feel you know feel the pain of another who has who has suffered or who's descended from those who suffered and thus still suffer because of that because these things have not really been addressed um in or if if we are ever to be able to transcend this Mm -hmm. and i think it's powerful that you used the image early on in your book about a house you know which kind of puts us all on this together, wouldn't you say? Like, this is our house and there's something happening in the basement, everybody. <laughs> it's like, somebody needs to go down there and check it out. <laughs> it's like, I hear some noise down there. No one's been down there in a while. We need to open that door. Well, hopefully as a as a global society, American society, we can open the door to this basement and, you know, there's some cleaning out to do and, we could uh, use the right uh, cleaners to do it, I suppose. But cast definitely is one of the proper tools, I think, for us to start this process. Isabel, thank you so much for being on Black in the Air, The Origins of Our Discontent. Guys, you have to read this book. It's so valuable. Like I said, just just for clarity's sake, you know, and for you have so many receipts, you know. <laughs> oh, man, when people say, well, you know, you know, the, the statistics were this many people went to jail. I said, Nigga, read the book and see how many, it's just, just see if, let's talk about just the, the everyday mistreatment of people in dehumanization. Yes. Don't tell me about statistics of how many people were officially done, you know, or whatever. Anyhow, I'm getting all riled up. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Good luck on your book tour and all that stuff. And uh, hope to see you soon. Isabel Wilkerson, you guys. Cast The Origins of Your Discontent. Thanks again. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.